nervous because it's this week. And so instead of Jake doing it, I'm doing it just because there was like four announcements. So now you got one. There's postcards in the lobby. You can take these. You can hand one to a friend and say, hey, why don't you join us for Christmas Eve? Uh, I'm going to whichever service you're going to, the 3 o'clock or the 5 o'clock, and ask them to come with you uh, to it. It is, uh, it'll be a, an hour long, lessons and carols um, and short little messages here and there. So it's a fun for the whole family, and it is a family affair. There's no nursery, so it's okay if kids make noise. I bet Jesus was kind of like that too, you know, crying and stuff. So it's a great time. It's a time in which kind of uh, helps us just see the flow of the story all the way through scriptures, and we get to sing a lot. So I encourage you to come to that, uh, to the Christmas Eve service. In this Christmas series that uh, I've been preaching, we've talked about how the coming of Christ shapes your identity, and we've noticed that in several ways. Christ shapes your identity by giving meaning to your very existence, because God is the personal creator and giver of life. gives meaning by illuminating your self-perception and exposing blind spots in your own experiences, and you need God's light to open and to shed light in the dark places and to open your eyes. We've seen how it shapes your identity because God comes to dwell with us in Jesus and invite us into the family of God to be known, loved, and receive an eternal inheritance. And last week, Peter talked about our identity being shaped by realizing that all of our striving for success and all that is, if that's how we view ourselves, that in itself, though striving is good, misses the point of what Jesus came to do, coming for the least, which is us. And today, I want you to think with me about how we are captivated by glory and greatness. College football championship. Oh man, that's going to be so, I can't wait for that. Some of you are NFL fans, the Super Bowl, right? I mean, we're launching into that season. Oh man, all for glory, right? If you're a football player and you make it into the NFL and you're good enough, you get to go to the Hall of Fame where if you get inducted, you are actually enshrined into glory. Right? Glory. It's not only for sports, Oscars, Grammys, Emmys, Nobel Prizes, Pulitzer, right? All different things. You might be drawn to the greatness of athletes or artists or maybe journalists or politicians or maybe social media personalities or savvy business entrepreneurs. Maybe it's the college that you're hoping to get into, that job that you want, the promotion or award that you're seeking. Those are quests for glory. When you stand in the bathroom in the morning in front of the mirror with a brush in your hand and lotions, it's because you're looking for glory. When you're in the kitchen preparing a savory dinner that is perfectly flavored and the apple pie that I can smell right now, oh, it's a quest for glory. It's a quest for something to be to be known, to be glorious, to be celebrated, to be great. The fact is that you and I are glory seekers. We are glory seekers and we are drawn to beauty. We're drawn to majesty. We're drawn to greatness, to honor, to glory. And that in itself is not sinful. It's the way we are hardwired. God made us that way. 
to be drawn to glory. He designed you to be drawn to glory. The problem is not being drawn to glory, but being drawn to the glory and satisfied in the glory of lesser things than the Creator who is the most glorious. So what I'm asking of you today as we think about this glory is not to stop searching for glory, but to dream bigger, to dream larger for something that is even more glorious than the things that you pursue and enjoy. C.S. Lewis writing in The Weight of Glory says this, and there's a slide we can put this on the screen. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What I'm proposing to you today, what my hope for you today is this, is that you will be shaped. That you will be shaped by and drawn to the glory of God in Christ. God is to be praised and glorified for all of His attributes. We're going to cover them all today in this sermon. Just kidding. Relax. You will go home today. Can't possibly do all of that in a sermon. Couldn't do that probably in a lifetime, right? So recognize that we can't cover all of that today. But what we can do is look at the glory of God in, in two ways. Two ways that he wants to be known for. I remember praying this prayer as a child. Maybe you prayed it too. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. By his hands we all are fed. Give us, Lord, our daily bread. God is great, and God is good. Those are the two things I want you to think about with me today. Let's pray as we begin to think about those. Father, I pray that you will help us to see these two parts of the way that you want to be known and seen as glorious. Would you sink it into us? Would it become a light so attractive that we are drawn to it and that it shapes our lives and we reflect it? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So my two points there are God is great and God is good, right? You should be, to put it a little bit longer, you should be shaped by and drawn to the glory of Christ because He is great, okay? In Luke chapter 2, verse 14, which um, is the Christmas story, you can go ahead and put that verse on the screen. What do the angels uh, say? Glory to God in the highest. In the highest heaven. The highest thing you can imagine. The God who is above all else. The highest, the greatest. Glory to the great one. Right? That's their announcement. He is the greatest. Scientists help us classify things, right? And I won't get this right, and so some of you guys can help me, but like kingdom, phylum, phylum species, whatever, like all those things, right? Order, right? All those things, they classify. Yeah, I see the scientists over there laughing at me. That's good. It's okay. But that's what happens, right? And so here's, here's what I know about it. Let's just practice this. Okay, here's, these are kinds of things, right? Oak is a kind of Tree, right, good. Beagle is a kind of a, a dog, right? Andrew is a, well, there's lots of fill in the blanks there, but, but uh, just keep it, I'm a what? A person, a human, right? Okay, and God is, yeah, great's an adjective. God, 
You, there's no higher thing to classify God by. Because He's the highest. He's the greatest. Right? And so in that sense, we see how great God is. And if God is that great, that means we come before Him with honor and reverence, maybe even fear. So Philippians 2.12, Paul tells us this. We can put that on the screen. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation. That is, you've already got your salvation, but because you have it, keep working in it with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. That means to live in such a way that we show proper respect and honor for the one who is the greatest. That, that what we revere is a controlling thing. Okay, I get that. It controls me in a way, right? So God is great. God is holy. He is powerful. He is mighty. And parents, this is what you're trying to teach your kids, right? Even in the simplest of ways, you need to respect authority by listening to me. I'm your father or your mother, right? And you want them to respect authority. Listen to your teachers, right? And you're teaching them lines of authority. And so in this way, it's the same thing is we come before God who is great and powerful and mighty and we should respect and revere and honor Him because He's powerful. Even to the point of fear and trembling. It's a humbling thing to realize our smallness before the greatness of God. Job, in the Old Testament, it's a book in the Old Testament right before Psalms, goes through a lot of suffering. Everything gets taken away. And he's wrestling with that. And in Job chapter 38, the Lord finally speaks after all of his friends shut up, giving him bad advice. And the Lord says this to him. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Job, were you there? That's what, that's what God is saying. He's great. And it shows us our place to be humble before greatness. Encountering the greatest one can be terrifying. It should be humbling for sure. And it can be terrifying if that one is evil. But what if that one is good? You see, what, what the Christmas story is telling us, what all of Scripture is actually telling us, is that the one who is the greatest is also the one who is good. We see this in John 1.14. Put that verse on the screen for me. John is writing and he says, we we have seen His glory. The Word, Jesus, who became flesh, right? God who became flesh in Jesus. We have seen His glory, glory of the One from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's seen the glory. What did they see that was so glorious? What was it? Was it 
Was it when he walked on water? On the waves where he tells them to halt? Was it, was it when he healed people or when he raised Lazarus from the dead after, after he'd been dead three days? Was it when he fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and a small fishes? Was it, was it when he was casting out demons? John will go on to talk about those things. But in this verse, what does he say that he is known for? How did they see his glory? He says we saw his glory full of grace and truth. That's how he's summarizing it. That's how he's encapsulating it. Full of grace and truth. The ESV Study Bible note says that grace and truth in John 1.14 most likely recalls the Hebrew behind the phrase, a phrase you see in the Old Testament frequently that says, steadfast love and faithfulness, grace and truth. And John is pulling that string through the Old Testament all the way and he's saying, that God, this God, our God, the one in the flesh came full of what he promised to come, grace and truth. And it's seen especially in Exodus chapter 33. And I want to give you some context before we look at these verses. I preached on them in the last year. But the context is critical because what's happening here is Israel, the people of God, have been freed from Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt for a long time. Moses rescues them. They leave Egypt. They come out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. They come to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, Israel has just made a marriage-like covenant with the Lord. The picture that is being presented is they are getting married and God is presenting to them as people and saying, okay, I have come to you. I've come to dwell with you and take you to dwell with me in this new land, this new home I'm promising. And here's our marriage vows. They're Ten Commandments. These are our vows to each other. And so Moses goes up on the mountain and he's up there for longer than they thought he would be for weeks, in fact. And they wondered if he had died and they didn't know what to do. And like, okay, maybe God's gone. I don't know. So let's build an idol. And they build a golden calf and they bow down to it and worship it. Which breaks one of the marriage vows. Moses comes down and sees it and takes the vows of the Ten Commandments and smashes them on the rocks. He said, what are you doing? You have broken your vows. What will the Lord do? He may divorce you and walk away and leave you. Moses intercedes with God, and God says, there will be consequences, but I will not divorce my people because I have pledged myself to them in faithfulness and steadfast love. Look at Exodus 33. Let's put these words on the screen. Verses 14 to 18. Notice key words. Listen for key words here that I've highlighted. And he said, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? It's not in your going with us so that we are distinct. I and your people for every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. Now, in the birth stories that we just read, the angels come pronouncing the glory of God and His favor on men on earth. Right? 
John 1.14, God comes to dwell, to be present with us that we might find rest in Him. Right? The story of Christmas is the fulfillment of everything from the Old Testament coming forward. And notice what Moses says there. Now please show me your glory. Now he's seen glory. He saw the glory in the plagues that came upon Egypt. The pillar of fire and the cloud. The parting of the Red Sea. The drowning of the Egyptian army. And there they are. And he says, okay, but I need to see your glory. And what does God do? He says, okay, I'm going to put you in the crack of this rock at the mountain. And I will pass by you. And I will show you what? Verse 19. Let's put that on the screen. Can you put verse 19? There it is. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy to whom I will show mercy. You know, this, some of what I'm getting here is from my previous sermon, but also from that book you guys, many of you are reading in your small groups, Gentle and Lowly, chapter 16. And he points this out and talks about this goodness. And then right after this, in chapter 34, verse 6, where the action actually happens of God passing by him, this is what we read in Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the words in the New Testament for grace and truth. That's what John is saying. That Jesus is the truth. Not truth as some abstract fact or value. Jesus is the truth and that the true reality, the fulfillment of everything that God had promised, what was once foreshadowed is now in the flesh. The true God in the flesh. The faithful one to all of His promises. We sang this earlier that made me think of this, right? Come thou fount of every blessing. Let thy what like a fetter. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. What is it going to keep a wandering people prone to bow down to idols and walk away from their God? What is it that is going to keep them bound to Him? Exodus tells us goodness of God. Okay, so what? How does this shape my life? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? I want you to be drawn to greatness that displays goodness. We're all drawn to glory. And we'll see that in sports and in jobs and in arts and everything, right? And, and there's something that's good and beautiful about that in, in fulfilling our humanness and doing those things. But more than that, right? We need to be drawn to a glory and a greatness that displays goodness. Here's a couple of ways to try to get practical. It tells us in that verse that God is slow to anger and abounding in love. What about you? What about me? Are you slow to anger and abounding in love? God is slow to anger, right? Very slow to that. It has to be provoked to anger. But 
But he's abounding in love and mercy. That just flows out of his heart. That's just who he is. It's his character. What are humans like? We're the opposite. Man, we are quick to snap and become angry and judge people. And man, we are really slow to show mercy. I don't know yet. I'm going to test that. Right? We could learn something from that. I have learned something from that over the years. I have had issues with my own anger over the years. In fact, I told this story many years ago. We had just moved into our house here in Woodlake. I was the, the, the new kid on the block, the new pastor planting a church, and we were getting everything settled and meeting our neighbors and had stuff in the garage, and I was trying to organize it and had doors set up and things and in places, a, a glass door that I'd taken off and was leaning in there, and my kids were in the driveway, a couple of my sons were in the driveway skateboarding on their rail and trying to practice rail slides, and I kept telling them, be careful because I'm working in here and I don't want you to mess anything up. Don't break anything. And so one of them comes and wipes out. And the skateboard goes flying off, shooting into the garage, smashes into the door, which falls onto the floor. And I was perfectly calm. <laughs> I wish. I told them to be careful. Maybe I just wasn't clear. So I decided to be a little bit more, well, let's say demonstrative. If only I had thought about it as long as I'm thinking about it right now. I grabbed the skateboard, went into the driveway, and smashed it as hard as I could on the rail, trying to break it, and it wouldn't break. And I look up, and my two sons are standing there looking at me in fear and trembling at the greatness of their father. <laughs> and I look to my left, to my neighbor's driveway, and his three-year-old girl is standing there looking at the new pastor her father in the garage. Like, this is going well. I had to apologize, rightly so, to everybody. Because I was quick to anger when I'm frustrated and when things don't go the way that I plan for them to go. When you're hurt by somebody, you can be quick to be angry. And there's an injustice. There's, a, there's, there's something there to that, right? But how does that anger come out? And God is the one that is slow to anger. And abounding in love. Mercy pouring out of His heart. Could we be more like that? If we're drawn to that kind of glory, would it shape you? I want you to be quick. Not to be angry, but quick to look at Christ who is slow to anger and let that shape your response. Maybe a, a second thing here, a second application in life would be this. That God's glory what he is known for is his grace upon grace, overflowing grace. Let's put up John 1.16 on the screen. So this comes obviously two verses after John 1.14 that we just read. And he says, for from his fullness, right? So John said, ended verse 14, we have seen the glory full of grace and truth. Then he's got a parenthetical comment in verse 15 and he comes back in verse 16, that fullness, that fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Or grace in place of grace. Just when you think you've run out of grace and God's like, nope, no more. There's grace upon grace. More grace that is flowing from His heart to you. Christ's grace does not drip like a leaky faucet. It abounds. It overflows like a flood. And when you are drawn to the glory of His goodness, it will flow out to you like that, and you know that it gets to you like that, it'll start to flow out of you toward others. 
Because how you think God treats you will be a key factor in how you will treat others. It will shape you. So maybe you will be not stingy, but generous the way God is. Not raging, smashing skateboards, but forgiving. Not arrogant, but humble. Right? Our God is good in all of His ways. And His goodness flows out in His covenant faithfulness to His people with His steadfast love and faithfulness. His mercy, His grace, His truth. Now, in talking about all this, it may seem to you like this is simply a recipe for weakness. This is how people get run over in society and taken advantage of and abused and Certainly, if you're trying to extend grace to somebody who has no concept of doing that, they may not return it to you. You have to recognize that. They may not. That doesn't mean it's wrong for you to do it. But what I'm saying is that this is not simply a recipe for weakness. It's not simply a recipe to have no spine and no strength. Because remember what we said in the first place, that God is the one who is the greatest the most power, is strong, has a spine. Right? This is not a recipe for weakness. Goodness is not the absence of justice. God will make sure justice occurs. He must, because He is also just, and He will be faithful to that. But what His heart bleeds, literally, is grace and mercy that flows towards us. Oscar Schindler saved 1,300 Jews during the Holocaust in World War II. It cost him $4 million. He spent his fortune to save their lives. In the movie Schindler's List, there is a powerful scene that I think actually illustrates what strength is when strength is characterized by the ability to show mercy. And the scene is, there's a drunk guard smoking a cigarette in the tower overlooking the prison yard. And he's watching a woman, a Jewish woman that is too weak to keep up. And he has his rifle sights trained on her. Schindler is standing next to him. And he's puffing a cigarette. And Schindler reaches out and lifts the barrel of his gun, disrupting the sights. and says, why were you going to shoot her? And he said, because it gives me power. Schindler responds, shooting that lady does not give you power. Having the authority to shoot her and not doing so, that's an act of power. Power that is good, controlled by a heart that loves to pour out grace upon grace is both strong and merciful. And Christ, remember, isn't simply in the tower lifting the barrels of of guns and stopping the enemy, stopping the evil one. No, He left the tower and went into the yard and took the prisoner's place and became sacrificed 
on behalf of them, that the prisoner might go free. Glory. Glory to the one who is great and the one who is good. Raise your eyes and look for that glory because it will shape you, your identity and your practice. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will help us to see all of your glory in all of your attributes, but especially as you reveal yourself to us and say, this is how my glory is to be known to my people. That your heart overflows, keeps spilling over with grace and mercy, with faithfulness to your promises, with goodness to us. Lord, help us not to become arrogant and neglecting your grace. Keep us humble because of your greatness and help us to cherish your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.